one of the most powerful things you can do is actually speak to your local politicians and tell them what you're passionate about, what do you want to see changed, and ask them to raise it for you in Parliament. Thanks for tuning in to episode three of season one, We Blue Dot, a conservation podcast. Enjoy listening. Welcome everyone, wherever you're listening from. We're so excited to welcome Catherine Gemmell as a guest to We Blue Dot today. Catherine is the Scotland Conservation Officer for the Marine Conservation Society, a role in which she covers everything from education, public engagement and beach cleans to campaigns, advocacy and policy. Catherine is passionate about marine conservation and I've had the pleasure of seeing this firsthand working alongside her over the years. Catherine, thanks for giving us your time today and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be back chatting to you again. So where are you joining us from, first of all, and how have things been over the last year? So calling in from my flat south of Edinburgh. Um, So yeah, the last year, got to know my local area very well. Very lucky (laughs) that live right on the green belt um, in South Edinburgh. So that's been lovely. Mm. But the difficult thing for me is the really extended periods of not being able to get to the beach and to get to the sea. So yeah. Um, not been to the beach in over five months which is probably the longest I've ever been in my life Mm. not being able to be by the sea in the sea on the sea Mm. and I know there'll be lots of us in a very similar position yeah no I know I I haven't been to the coast for quite a long time and I'm I'm really missing it it's um, something something else to look forward to when things open up a wee bit so to start off with can you Give us a wee bit of a background of your journey into conservation, like what did you study at university and things like that? Have you always had a passion for the outdoors? I really have. You could probably tell by my comment about being so long away from the sea has been really hard. So yeah. I grew up on the Murray coast, so had the wonderful Murray Firth bottlenose dolphins to be going out visiting every weekend when I was volunteering at the Scottish Dolphin Centre. But it was actually at school, I really enjoyed history. So when I went to apply for university, I kind of just saw the ocean as a bit of a hobby and as an interest. So I wasn't actually very good at sciences. So I always thought you had to study biology to be a marine biologist. And that was the only job available to do with the sea. So I was actually all set to do ancient history at Edinburgh before going to an open day at Aberdeen. And there was a degree being advertised for marine and coastal resource management with all the qualifications that I had. And something just clicked. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Didn't realise that was an option. Let's go for it. So then I spent the next four years at Aberdeen University studying that. And the other thing that really helped me just fall in love with the sea all over again was learning how to scuba dive and joining the local student society, which was amazing and I think anybody who's learned to dive in Scotland especially off the east coast Mm -hmm. if you've fallen in love with diving there you're set for diving (laughs) all over the world the visibility on my first dive was probably about 20 centimeters so (laughs) lost my instructor a few times but still absolutely loved it so that really kind of cemented that love for the ocean and wanting to do something with it yeah But then there's a little bit of a curveball. Obviously, anyone who goes to uni or who also dives knows it's not probably the cheapest of things to be doing, studying Mm -hmm. and learning and buying kit for scuba diving. So applied for lots of part-time jobs. And the only place that got back to me was the Aberdeen Disney Store. (laughs) As well as having a lot of fun doing everything from dressing up 
as pirates to chatting to people about their favorite Disney characters. Finding Nemo was obviously a very big thing when I was working there. I realized how much I enjoyed working with people and working with young people. So starting to look beyond university, I was trying to decide, well, what career could I do that kind of combines this love for the ocean with working with people? And then came across the field of environmental education, mm. um, which I know is where we then crossed paths <laughs> after I did a stint down on the south coast of England um, as a field studies instructor, and then came back to Scotland to work at the aquarium, which mm. was just wonderful. So mm. really introducing people to this love that we both had mm. so they could experience it for themselves. And then it was when I was working at the aquarium that I began volunteering for the Marine Conservation Society as one of their sea champions. And when the role of Scotland Conservation Officer came up, which was nearly six years ago now, My which goodness. is a little mm. bit mind blowing to think <laughs> of, I know, where has the time gone? Yeah. My volunteer manager really encouraged me just to be brave and just to go for it. Um, and here I am six years later, absolutely loving it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it sounds like, I mean, I've obviously kept up to date with what you've been doing over the last few years, and it does sound like you're a perfect job, but also a really, a really cool job to be involved in. Um, but we'll come back to that a wee bit later on. And do, you, you mentioned you're a diver. I mean, do you have any really memorable diving experiences that you can tell us about, either off the East Coast or anywhere else? So, yeah, so obviously that first one, we'll maybe not spend too much time on, but it was <laughs> fantastic to get myself into the water. Yeah, since then, I've been lucky enough to dive all over Scotland, the UK, and even when I've been lucky enough to travel around the world. But I really do like to advocate for Scotland seas. A lot of people don't think of it as a diving destination, but mm. we've got some spectacular creatures that mm -hmm. live here and also some spectacular habitats from cold water reefs to kelp forests to mm -hmm. dive through. If I was to choose a moment that really stands out for me, it was during a dive trip up to Orkney to mm -hmm. dive at Scapa Flow with the, the German fleet that sunk there. And it was actually on an afternoon where I'd taken a break from diving because it's quite deep diving, deep technical diving. So the rest of the team went in and I was just gonna relax, relax on the boat and take mm -hmm. in the scenery when two porpoises started oh, wow. off the boat. So the skipper was like, do you wanna pop in with just with your mask and snorkel and see if they come any closer so I was like sure <laughs> so hopped everything on jumped off the boat and one of them kept getting closer and closer and I ended up just kind of standing upright in the water with my head in just looking at them and this porpoise just kept circling closer and closer and then getting faster and faster to like swim straight towards me and then dive off down to the side and then circling me and like going on their side and really like eyeballing me trying mm -hmm. to work out who I was and what I was doing <laughs> in their kind of, in their home, in their patch. So it was just incredible to think of something like the humble porpoise has given me such a magical experience. But although porpoises are one of our smallest cetaceans in Scotland, just the power that I saw, the speed they could swim, I was just like, I'm very much in your territory here. My mm. flippers aren't anything compared, <laughs> <laughs> compared to yours. But yeah, it's a memory that'll stay with me forever. And when all my friends came up from their dive, um, the skipper was just like, I think Kat's had the best time of all of you. And she didn't <laughs> even put on her tank. You're right, though. I mean, in those kind of environments, the word respect comes to mind. You know, as you say, it's such, it seems like such a small wee creature, the porpoise. But when you're in their environment, it's, yeah, you've got to respect them and, and understand that you're in their home. And I imagine it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you've had some really cool experiences 
It was. Yeah, so let's talk about the ocean in general. Why is it so important to us? So I think we could probably talk for hours <laughs> over several drinks about that question. But when you first invited me on the podcast, I have to admit, I loved the name of it because I think to me that represents why the ocean is so important. You know, are we blue dots? We are more planet ocean than planet earth you know the ocean covers more of the surface on the planet mm. than land does so just taking from that fact alone we need to be focusing that amount of time and energy and love into the mm. ocean from everything that it gives us from well-being to health a lot of people think of the amazon rainforest as the lungs of the planet but we would argue that one lung might be our trees and our rainforests the other would be our oceans and that every second breath we take does actually come from the ocean. Mm -hmm. So even if you're listening from a landlocked country and you've not been to the sea in years, know that it's out there and it's working hard for you. And no matter where you are, we should be thinking about it and taking actions to sadly recover it because mm -hmm. we have had such a huge impact on it, to protect what's still there, and then also to celebrate it. I think that's what's really important, I think. You'll know this with conservation, it can be so hard to get overwhelmed about what's happening to our biodiversity, to our habitats, to our amazing blue planet. But it's really important just to connect people back to nature, get people talking about stories about interacting with porpoises <laughs> or finding a starfish <laughs> or just going for a walk in your local park. Because I do truly believe that what so many great conservationists have said before me is people won't take action to protect what they don't love. <laughs> so if we can get that first, that's really important. <laughs> so hopefully, We'll encourage a few others listening today just to remind themselves why do they love the sea and see what else they can do to help protect it. Yeah, and you made a point earlier on joking about the visibility on the East Coast. I mean, Scotland isn't really the kind of place you'll go in the sea very often, you know, unless you've got the right gear on. It's pretty chilly, it's pretty cold and has a lot of coastline, but it's pretty stormy. Um, but as you mentioned, we do have such amazing wildlife around our, our shores and there maybe it's kind of, because it's a maybe out of sight, out of mind, people don't think about it as much. If you live in a beautiful tropical warm climate, you're maybe in the sea a lot more and you see a lot more sea life. But I still think it's, as you say, it's, yeah, it's definitely really important to, to talk about what we've got around Scotland seas because they're so awash with all sorts of amazing things. Going back to what you mentioned about, you know, like one lung being from our kind of rainforest and one lung being from the ocean. Can you explain to people listening who might not maybe know much about that, what the ocean actually does in terms of generating the oxygen that we breathe? It's when we think about the ocean, maybe what comes to mind is obviously just like the big blue mass. But when we're talking about what the ocean does for us in regards to the oxygen it provides and the carbon dioxide it then takes in, working in reverse to what our lungs do, it's all of the creatures that live in it. It's all of the plants that live in it. It's all the sediments and the sea floor right at the bottom. So if you imagine when we're breathing out that carbon dioxide, like the trees, in a way, almost breathe in and take in the carbon dioxide, it's the sediments, it's the plants, it's all the tiny little creatures that we can't even see with the naked eye that live in the ocean that are then taking that in and most of the time locking it away. So you might have heard of this term blue carbon or blue carbon sinks. So you almost think of the carbon dioxide sinking into the ocean, it gets locked away in sediments, in certain creatures, in certain plants. And then what they then expire and breathe out 
is the oxygen that we breathe. Mm -hmm. So almost view it as just the opposite system to how our bodies work, but know mm -hmm. that the ocean's body, like our body, is made up of lots of different things from creatures to plants to things that sound very boring, like burrowed mud, but are very mm -hmm. important about sucking in that carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I was reading or watching something the other day talking about what an important role, for example, whales play when they come up to breathe for air, they, they'll do a poo and it will fertilize the phytoplankton, which is, is it kind of a small plant or is it a small creature? And then the phytoplankton consume loads of carbon dioxide, like way more than the rain, like the Amazon rainforest and things. Is that correct? That's it. So and you've got plankton is, you know, these tiny little microscopic creatures or plants. So you get both. Um, okay. And they do play such an important role. A lot of people just think of them as whale food. A lot of our big whales mm -hmm. obviously eat this tiny food. But you're right, they play such an important part in absorbing that carbon dioxide and distributing it out. And because they're found all over the world in the ocean as well, in numbers that we just couldn't even imagine, in their trillions, they play such an important part. And in a way, you could maybe view the plankton like the leaves of the rainforest that's how many yeah. of them there are and they're all playing their own little part and it's an example of the smallest thing the phytoplankton all the way up to the biggest the whales you know they all play their part and that's um, an example of why it's so important that we have healthy seas and that everything has got enough room to and, and food to survive yeah it's all the circle of life as they say we've talked to me a bit about why it's it's so important but am I right in saying there's about is that about 80% of all life on Earth is actually found in the ocean? It is. And I think this is where there's still so much still to explore. I think a lot of people think, obviously, the great age of exploration is over. But there is incredible scientists, conservationists, local communities still discovering new creatures, new habitats, new places that humans just have never been before in our ocean. So whereas a lot of us are still looking to the skies and to space, for the next kind of exploration frontier. I think a lot of people forget that there is still so much to find out about our ocean and there is so much that lives in there and part of all these kind of important systems that the more that we learn, the more we are learning how connected everything is. And you might've noted I've used the term ocean quite a lot rather than oceans as it's a really big push amongst the conservation community to really talk about the fact that we only really have one ocean because it is yeah. also connected. So anything that we do here in Scotland ultimately could be having an impact in seas on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. No, you're totally right. I mean, I've probably said that as well, but it's a really important point to use the right terminology, as you say. So can you tell us a wee bit about the Marine Conservation Society and then your role within the organisation? Of course. So we're a UK-wide charity um, and we kind of work on three main conservation areas. Uh, one of them is called ocean recovery. So this is all about recovering the ocean, including habitats and species, protecting it and then making sure it's well managed for the future. So a lot of this work is done through making sure we have a well-managed network of what's called MPAs, which are marine protected areas. So similar to like national parks on land, it's similar that we need these areas protected underwater as well. We then also work on fisheries and aquaculture as well. So we produce something called the Good Fish Guide. So any listeners who enjoy their seafood 
would highly encourage that you download the Good Fish Guide app or check it out on the website. And the last area is around clean seas. And this is the area of work that I do most of my work on in Scotland, which is about trying to stop at source all of the marine litter. And this also includes chemicals and other pollutants entering the ocean in the first place. So at a UK level, we've got our head office based down in ross on wye and we've got a team based in London and in Wales, and of course, in Scotland. And the reason we've got the Welsh and Scottish teams is we've got the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Parliament, and environmental matters are mostly devolved to these governments and these parliaments. So that's why we've got the dedicated teams, as well as working at the UK level, we can work specifically in the devolved nations as well to try and get environmental legislation and all the kind of different wins we need to see for Scotland happening in Scotland at the same time. Yeah, it sounds like, so in the last few years in this role, if you had to get a lot more involved in a lot of politics and, and, and the political side, yeah, maybe previous jobs. It really has. It's been a very steep learning curve in the world of policy and advocacy and working with parliamentarians. I still remember in my interview for this job being asked what my policy experience was and what I said was just very honest to be like, oh, I don't have any, but I'm willing to learn. And my brain was like, I don't even know what policy is. What does it mean? What, 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 what are they asking? <laughs> but years later, I've just discovered policy is just the changes that we want made. So whether it's a new piece of legislation, a new law, a new regulation, a new rule, you know, a policy can go down to something like a school level. You might have a uniform policy. That's just a rule on what you should be wearing to school. It goes all the way up to introducing a policy to ban plastic cotton buds. Mm -hmm. To do that policy change, you then need to do the advocacy work, which is all the campaigning, all the different things we do from the volunteers doing our beach cleans and collecting all the information on the litter around Scotland and using that as evidence to speak to parliamentarians. So speaking to parliamentarians across the political spectrum and also working with the Scottish government ministers as well to encourage them to bring forward the new powers, the new legislation that we need to save the sea as well. So yeah, definitely a steep learning curve, but it's been a really important one. And it's something I'm quite passionate about is trying to encourage everybody to get more involved with their local politicians, because ultimately their job is to represent you. So it can feel a bit daunting, but ultimately, that's one of the most powerful things you can do is actually speak to your local politicians and tell them what you're passionate about. What do you want to see changed and ask them to raise it for you in Parliament? Yeah, and I think it's great that, that Marine Conservation Society and, and you are, are doing that for us as well, um, because you're the experts in, in regards to the marine side of things. So in, before COVID, what was your normal day like? I mean, do you spend a lot of time in the office or do you get out and about quite a lot? So it was really nice. I did spend a lot of time out and about and it was great because, yeah, never two days were really ever the same. Um, and with my remit kind of covering the whole country, we've obviously got a very big, beautiful country with a lot of coastline. Um, so I got to spend a lot of time traveling to work with different communities, chatting to different partners. I've been able to do beach cleans from, you know, from the borders up to Shetland um, and helping gather that data as part of the Citizen Science Project. But then on other days, I might be taking that evidence into Scottish Parliament or into government meetings where we're then trying to do that advocacy work to put on the table. And a lot of that can get really creative, which I really enjoyed as well. So I've done so much work with artists, with musicians, with young people, all to try and tell the story in a different way to ultimately persuade politicians or big business 
to change how they do things to then ultimately, for me, it was reducing the amount of litter the volunteers were then seeing on the beaches in the first place. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, we can, as individuals, change our behaviour and do little things to help. But then the bigger problem is the businesses and the government level. That's at the end of the day where we need to see the change, really, isn't it? To make a, to make a difference. It is. And for all of our campaigns and our work, as well as having the three conservation areas, we always kind of talk about the three levels of engagement that we need to activate to get change. So one of them is definitely, as all as individuals, as a society, we can change our behavior and there is actions that we can take, but we can't have it on its own. We also need to speak to business. We need to speak to manufacturers and producers all the way through the supply chain to make sure that they're putting in place good policy practice and good regulations to stop things leaking into the environment and ultimately to make it easier for us to then make that sustainable choice. And then right at the top, we have to engage with governments we might have to put forward the legislation to ensure that businesses are following the right practice to then make it the easiest for us all as individuals to make the sustainable choice. As you're probably aware, I know we've both been on a bit of a, a plastic-free journey over the last couple of years, and it's not easy. A lot of the time it's more expensive to get either a plastic-free option or a more eco-friendly or sustainable option. So although there are actions we can take, I always say to people, Try not to get overwhelmed and put it all on your shoulders, because what needs to happen is for all three levels to be engaged. And that's when we'll have success as well. Yeah, completely. It needs to be loads of different people working together, really, at the end of the day to make a difference. Well, that's what I was going to come on to. I mean, we've mentioned plastic already, obviously, and the good fish guide and things. But what are the main problems that MCS and yourself are finding are facing marine life today and can you give us examples maybe in general but also specific examples maybe in Scotland? Definitely so when I try and introduce the topic of marine litter and what, why does MCS even even work on it and we talk about the impact of marine litter on wildlife going back to what we were talking about earlier on the fact that we do have so many more documentaries it's in the news so much more often this is getting a lot easier to tell and a lot of people are already aware. But I kind of split it down into two main impacts on wildlife. The first one is entanglement. And sadly, we've had a lot of whales around the Scottish coast who have died from being entangled in ropes and gear. And the other one is ingestion. So actually wildlife eating the litter that's being put into the ocean. Wildlife from leatherback turtles, the world's largest turtle, to our big whales washing up on Scottish beaches that have died because they've consumed too much plastic. But what's important to remember as well is it's not just big wildlife that's getting impacted, right down to the small scale. We're now seeing these animals that are impacted from like North Sea shrimp, the tiny little shrimp plankton, these big whales eat on. Animals are at the bottom of the food chain. Scientists are now discovering are consuming plastic and it's working its way up as well. We don't know yet, but there could be implications for human health as well. For anyone who does eat seafood, that's working its way up the food chain. What impacts could that be having over time as well? So telling that story, I usually use two examples from Scotland. So one is from um, Noel, who works for the Scottish Wildlife Trust. But he's also a volunteer for the British Divers Marine Life Rescue for a fantastic charity who train up divers or anybody basically with a dry suit who can go out to maybe help with strandings. And sadly, there was a case where they had successfully disentangled a humpback whale up in Orkney, 
At the same time, back on the Argyle coast, there was a minke whale that had washed up entangled in fishing gear. So it just shows you there is work going on to help these creatures, mm -hmm. but we need to stop it at source. It then means they won't even have to do it in the first place or pick and choose which animal to save. And the other person I always mention um, is Maggie, who is one of the landing guides at Bass Rock. Mm -hmm. So this is incredible. World's largest northern gannet colony um, comes to Bass Rock in Scotland every year to nest. Maggie sees a lot of litter in the nests. And there's also the endangerment that the adults are feeding their chicks plastic as well. So she found like a regurgitated um, food pellet that luckily hadn't been given to a chick that was made up of loads of plastic nurdles, these tiny little plastic pellets that most plastic starts its life at, as well as three cotton bud sticks and a balloon as well. Wow. So although people are maybe seeing all these news stories elsewhere in the world, you're right, it's really important to bring it back and show it is happening in Scotland. And that's why we as a charity are working on it because we can see the impact. And we know if we can stop it at source, it will then reduce the amount of impact that we're seeing on some of the most amazing marine wildlife in the world mm -hmm. that can be found right here in Scotland. Yeah, because if there's one thing Scotland certainly has, it's lots of coastline and lots of marine life, as you say. Um, and nurdles, yeah, I mean, we both, I think we both, I got to know nurdles when I was working with you probably years ago. And they're, they're an example that there are a lot of them on the East Coast, I think in particular, if you're walking around any beaches, they're just tiny little circular plastic balls that are basically... So if someone's making something out of plastic in a factory, that's what they make them out of. Is that right? Yeah. So this is where the plastics issue is so complex because there's so many different sources of the plastic litter that our volunteers are finding on beaches. So you've got everything from the nurdles, which we kind of call virgin plastics. It hasn't even had a chance to be made into, say, a plastic bottle to then be used and littered. Yeah. It's leaking into the environment potentially from the factory, from when it's getting transported, so lorries, shipping, down drains. And because they're so small and they're made in their trillions, it doesn't take for many to escape to have quite a large impact on beaches and on wildlife bigger plastic is obviously a problem as well but it's the small microplastics that are probably as you say quite problematic because they're coming up the food chain aren't they as well and there's the possibility as you say that you're consuming microplastics in your in your fish that you're eating in front of you on your dinner plate so I, as much as that sounds that might shock some people I think that's really important to talk about because it's that personal kind of link that might get people to think about it a wee bit more, as I said earlier on, out of sight, out of mind. But if you're thinking about how it's affecting maybe the food that you're eating in front of you, people might be more likely to maybe act and learn a wee bit more about it. Definitely. And I think that's where you're looking at the wider issue as well, because your microplastics could be something like your nurdles, but it could also be once they've been made into a bottle that's been thrown in the ocean and then due to the wave action, the sunlight, it will degrade over time. But sadly, plastic will just never disappear. It does just keep breaking down and breaking down and until it becomes these tiny bits, which we do know as microplastics that, again, are then working its way up the food chain. But there's also other sources of it that are now coming from like our clothing. So microfibers is now another microplastic that we're recognizing as entering the ocean. So it's plastic polymer and threads that are being used in our clothing that when they're washed in the washing machine, these microfibers then going through the system and they're so small that they're not captured at any stage. Yeah. And we have seen things like North Sea shrimp are starting to eat these microfibers as well. So it's crazy. very quickly, you could feel very overwhelmed. Like, how do we do any of this? So it's always really important to bring it back to 
we are taking actions. There are steps we can take and any action you can take will have a positive impact as well. Yeah, it's just a lot of it's just education as well. As you say, um, I remember a few years ago before COVID, obviously um, there was the craze around plastic straws, which is fantastic, but it became a trend almost after some of the documentaries and things that came out. And although they are very important and it's great to use alternatives if you can that's just one example of a bigger problem you know plastics in in everything it's in your clothing um, it's in fishing gear is plastic as well mostly because it's such it is such a strong durable thing to use and I think that's what I used to say to people when I was working in the aquarium that the plastic itself is is brilliant you know it's such a durable product and it's been around for the last 50 60 years and it's it's great it's the way we're using it that's the problem or the way that we're discarding it probably more than anything that's exactly it and it's so important now especially with the plastics debate that when you're looking at trying to change policy policy work does take a long time which can sometimes be frustrating from a conservation angle but it's also good to make sure that it takes the time to make sure that everybody has been consulted, everyone's had a chance to share their views. So I think the plastic straws is a fantastic example of where the environment sector was just like, why do we have plastic straws? We don't need them. They're impacting wildlife. Let's just get rid of them. But through the consultation process, we then had other charities coming forward to say, no, there's members of society who rely on these straws yeah. to be able to eat, to be able to drink, to be able to go out in public and not have to feel discriminated, which we didn't realize. So I think when we're looking at the plastics issue as well, for those of us who can get very passionate about it, we have to make sure that we don't do any knee-jerk policymaking, and that goes all the way up to our politicians as well, and to make sure that we do take a more holistic view of the problem because we're only going to actually achieve it if we do bring the whole of society with us. If we start to alienate certain sections of society, we're never going to save the ocean either. So I think the importance of, I think the official turn is intersectional environmentalism. So it's, you know, looking at the whole of society and making sure that everybody's voice is heard and we come up with the best solution for both, basically for people and the planet. And that's the only really positive way forward that's going to have the long-lasting impact that the ocean needs. Yeah, no, you're totally right, though. I mean, for a, as a personal example, um, I've had the privilege and pleasure of working over the last few years with a lot of young adults with disabilities, and I've worked with people who need a plastic straw, you know, to drink their drink. And so when that whole campaign and kind of craze was going on, I was thinking, yeah, it's great to, to stop using them if we need to, but there are also people who do need them. So, so as you say, it's just thinking of it from all sides and involving everyone in society, as you say, that's a really good point. And you mentioned the Good Fish Guide. So can you just tell us a wee bit more about that so people can download an app? Is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. So yeah, so just look up the Good Fish Guide on um, whatever phone or device that you've got, or there's also a full website as well. And what our team do is incredible. They create a rating for every single seafood product that's on the market in the UK. So you'll be able to use a search function to put in. So say you're wanting a haddock fish supper, you can put in haddock in the search. It'll then come up with all the different options for haddock products. And it might depend on where it's been caught. So then a lot of it can be quite overwhelming. So the Good Fish Guide is great for us all as consumers to use to try and make the best choice. But the Good Fish Guide is also really important for trying to get businesses and restaurants and supermarkets 
to be supplying sustainable seafood. And then ultimately, it's also a tool that we can use for government to encourage them to bring forward good fisheries management and to bring forward good aquaculture standards as well for products coming on the UK market. But for all of us to use it, as well as the traffic light system, they're all given a number. So when we talked about green, the ones that are obviously the most responsible choice at the moment, they'll come out as a one or a two. So you can even go for like the ones as much as possible, but two is still in that green. Then if it comes out as a three or a four, that matches up with that amber category where it's just stop and think, maybe see if there's an alternative one. And the Good Fish Guide is brilliant. It does recommend similar alternatives or encourages you maybe to try a fish that you've not tried before. But if it comes out as a five and in that red list, that is our fish, fish to avoid. So to make sure if you are seeing that for sale, not to buy it and to maybe recommend friends and family that maybe aren't aware of the Good Fish Guide, that they shouldn't be eating it either and maybe encourage them to use it as well. But you could also maybe encourage local businesses to use it themselves to help with what they actually buy in. Because if your local fishmonger only supplied seafood that was on the green list, you wouldn't have to worry about checking. You could just guarantee knowing yeah. and do that. Yeah. And we've done some brilliant work with some of the big supermarkets to try and encourage more of them to only source and then sell products that are on our good fish guide in that fish to eat section. Yeah, and it, it's really important to think of the bigger picture. People might not think, as you say, of some of the smaller species that are on the endangered species list. But um, but when you all these smaller species that say live around the British coast, they're a really important part of the whole ecosystem. So each of them is as, is as important as any of the other, I think. Definitely. It's actually just a really good tool for just learning a little bit more. Every time I go onto it, I learn something else. I learn a new species, just actually the amount of different species that we actually have for sale here in the UK is astounding. And talking about the endangered species, one of the ones that still shocked me was, you know, the European eel. Mm -hmm. It's called like jellied eel and things like that. You know, they're an endangered species and you can buy them in the supermarket. So, you know, to me, that's almost like seeing tinned panda or having like blue whale steaks, you know, you just wouldn't. (laughs) But for a lot of people, it's that awareness if you don't know you're not going to avoid it and you're not then going to start questioning well why is my supermarket even trying to sell me Mm -hmm. an endangered species so I think it's a brilliant tool to be used individually but it's also very powerful and is being used again at those three different levels as well to make sure ultimately it's making our lives as easy as possible to live in a sustainable and responsible way yeah and it's the little kind of more boring shall I say species that as you say in conservation it's the same on land people do like the tigers and the and the elephants and the rhinos and they're not so interested in maybe the little frogs but they all play a part so I guess it's it's all just about education and teaching people as we said though it can get a wee bit overwhelming sometimes thinking about all these things what do you think are some of the solutions to these problems that uh, we've maybe already mentioned it, but what as, a, as an individual can a person do? There's actually so much that we can kind of do to become ocean citizens. And at the moment, um, there's a lot of phrases from like sofa supporters to armchair activists. So if you don't live next to the sea, don't worry, there's still lots that you can do. But I mean, one of the easiest ways to get involved and when restrictions allow are taking part in some of our citizen science projects. Mm-hmm. Citizen science is this fantastic movement where you don't need to be a scientist, you don't need to have a PhD or wear a white lab coat. All you have to be able to do is help gather information to then send to scientists who can use it to do the important research, which will lead to the policy changes that we need. 
So some of the projects that we run include Beach Watch. So if you do live near the coast, you can adopt a 100 meter stretch of beach. And as well as cleaning the litter from it, we then send you a survey form. So you then count up how many crisp packets, wet wipes, bottles that you found. And that goes into our big now over 25 year old data set that's actually still being used by governments across the UK to help make these new policy changes. So that's always a fantastic one. The other citizen science projects we run are more biodiversity based, which is really nice. So if you enjoy your seaweed, we work with the Natural History Museum in London for the big seaweed search. So this gives you the seaweed guide. And basically, instead of almost adopting a 100 meter stretch of beach, you adopt a 30 meter transect, so a 30 meter line of rocky shore Mm -hmm. and go and record the different seaweed species that you find. I always really enjoy doing it, but I usually get very distracted by general rock pooling at the same time. So definitely make sure you go down at low tide and give yourself plenty of time to do your seaweed searching and also have fun looking for your hermit crabs and uh, all your little blennies as well. And the last one is Jelly Watch. So we're about to come into jellyfish season probably in the next month or so. They're a really useful indicator species for leatherback turtles. So the favorite food of our leatherbacks who come to visit us every year but also for climate change as well, for warming seas. So if you are out and about, don't worry, jellyfish aren't endangered, but the reason we're wanting recordings of them is to find out, is something happening to Scotland seas? Are they warming? Are they being found in different areas? Are they swarming, like coming together more often? And is that indicator of where our leatherback turtles then might be found as well? So citizen science is is a brilliant action that everyone can take. But I'm also aware that For those of us who aren't able to get out to the coast, there's still quite a few things you can do at home at the moment. So we've obviously talked about the Good Fish Guide. There's also a lot of petitions and things that you're able to support. So the one that we've got going at the moment is linked to those microfibers that we talked about. So our campaign is called Stop Ocean Threads. You can sign a petition that's asking the governments of the UK to make sure that all washing machines by 2023, I think it is, are fitted with filters to capture these microfibers and that all of the big commercial machines are retrofitted with them as well. So something you could do just now after listening to this podcast is have a look on our website, look up Stop Ocean Threads, and you can sign a petition from your sofa that you know will help the ocean as well. It's obviously a big year in Scotland. We're coming up to the Scottish elections at the beginning of May. So if you're listening to this before the 6th of May, You could actually look up the Fight for Scotland's Nature campaign, which we support, and ask all the candidates standing in your area for election become nature champions. So they can sign a pledge that means if they're elected to the next Scottish Parliament, they will champion nature. I think we need all of our politicians, all of our parliamentarians to recognise the value of nature, not just in the ocean, but the whole of Scotland to make sure that any legislation that's put forward in the next parliamentary term has nature at its heart. And we make sure that these parliamentarians understand what we all do is that nature is not just important for our well-being and for our enjoyment, but it is actually necessary for our very survival. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. No, that I will obviously share the website and all the social media links and things for MCS and yourself. But the my experience of working in conservation is, I mean, I was saying, talking about being overwhelmed, is people can either be quite negative, they might feel quite sad, as you say, overwhelmed towards humans or the global problems, or I think like yourself, they can be quite positive. And 
um, there's a movement, isn't there, kind of conservation optimism. So can you tell us a wee bit more about that and why it's so important? I totally agree. So those of you listening can probably tell that me and Katie are definitely conservation optimists, or most of the time I call myself an ocean optimist as well. Um, just probably from our personalities, we're quite bubbly, we get very excited about the littlest of things. But I think it is so important. But I think it's also important to be honest and recognise there are days where I feel overwhelmed. There are days where I feel sad that things have happened, that you know we see the impact on our wildlife. But for me, it's connecting with other people that always sparks back the optimism again. So actually just taking part in the podcast is just lovely to kind of speak about all these things. But also knowing that there's so many community groups, individuals, volunteers, yeah. young people over the last few years for us all to see them rising up with the climate strikes. But also I've been doing a lot of work with the Scottish Youth Parliament and Youth Link Scotland who have then really helped us as a charity ensure we're including young people because ultimately it is going to be them that then takes up the mantle. They're going to be the next David Attenborough's. So if we're not listening and working with them now, we're, there's going to be gaps in our work. And it's by working with all these different people and hearing what they're doing always just sparks that optimism in me as well. So sometimes an action that you can just take is literally just have a chat with someone and talk about the sea or talk about nature and just share your favorite creatures, your favorite stories, at the moment, a Zoom cup of coffee with somebody and just chat about your favourite nature things. And then when you're allowed, organise a trip into your favourite part of nature. And then that's the first step of the journey and see how many people you can take along with you. Totally. And over this last year, I know we've all been missing that kind of interaction, but at least we've got Zoom and we've got video calls and all these different things that we can do it on. So, and we can still go walks and things with people. So hopefully this summer it will get a bit better. What impact has the pandemic and the last year had on our beaches and, and the ocean? So there's lots of different impacts that it has had from the positive, so the ocean optimist side saying people are reconnecting back to nature again. We've also seen our seas had starting to quieten down with the amount of shipping, the amount of use from jet skis and all that kind of thing, thinking local to global again. But sadly, there has been negative impacts and directly affecting my work is the types of litter that we've been finding, not just on our beaches, but across our landscapes. As we know, most of the litter that ends up in our ocean comes from land. And many of you listening will definitely have seen probably littered PPE. So everything from single use face masks to single use gloves and even the hand sanitizer bottles. We've seen a huge increase in the amount that our volunteers are finding through our citizen science project, Beachwatch. And during our big beach clean last September, I think it was almost a third of cleans PPE was found. Whereas before, you know, it was maybe an extra item that was found when it was a dust mask that maybe mm. somebody had dropped. So we are concerned that this is going to carry on being a problem. And we would encourage people, if you're using single use masks, to make sure you're disposing of them correctly. And if you can, choose reusable. It's a message we kind of have across everything reuse is definitely the way to go where you can but if you need to use single use items for anything it's just make sure they're being disposed of properly so they're not leaking into the environment Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you as you say, there's been I've noticed that there's been such a huge increase in the single use plastic and the single use objects that it's very useful and it's necessary in a lot of situations at the moment. But as you say, just think about it. 
dispose of it correctly. And I mean, I've got quite a few wee cool trendy masks that I use, so I don't have to use a single use ones. Cool, that's great. On a more optimistic note, um, what is your favourite sea creature and why? As you can imagine, this probably changes daily for me, but because I've not had a chance to talk about them yet, I'm going to say the basking shark. So the world's second largest fish, these incredible creatures come to Scotland every summer to hoover up all the plankton, mostly on the west coast, but you do see them over on the east coast as well. And it was going to be the second wildlife encounter that I'd probably mention after the porpoise, where again, I was lucky enough to be snorkeling off the Isle of Mull, and this huge basking shark just came cruising straight by. And it was just one of those moments again where I was just awestruck that our sea is full of these huge, incredible creatures going about their day, eating their food, but knowing that actually all the work that we do is helping these incredible creatures and actually just, yeah, having the privilege to see them firsthand was just wonderful. So yeah, big basking shark, probably my favorite for today. Yeah, no, sharks in general are my favorite. I've not seen a basking shark yet, maybe this summer or next. Um, no, that's awesome. We're really lucky in Scotland to have all these different amazing species. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to get a role in conservation? Oh, so I think, I know it sounds like a cliche, but volunteering is a fantastic step in. It's how I managed to get involved. So I volunteered pretty much throughout my whole life from when I was at school with the Dolphin Centre to when I was diving and doing all of that as a volunteer and um, to when I became a sea champion with MCS. It's not just the skills you learn as a volunteer, it's the networking. So you then get to speak to other people, you get opportunities that come up. And then basically it's just being brave enough that when the opportunity comes up, say yes and go for it. Put yourself out there and meet people. Well, I know we could keep blethering for ages, but um, we have run out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been lovely to talk to you. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me and look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you.